Our scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. And you'll find that scripture on the white sheet in your worship folders. And you can find it in your um, Bible, of course. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 832. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible or if there's someone else you'd like to give a Bible to, you are welcome to take one of those pew Bibles as our gift to you. Uh, The translation I'm reading from is called NIV, so the wording is a little different than what's in your pew Bible, but the meaning is exactly the same. So Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Good morning. One of the most powerful forces in all of the universe is tradition. Your family has it, my family has it, we've all got traditions, don't we? When certain times of year roll around or certain occasions come up, we expect to celebrate them in certain ways. Every family has what I call in my mind a Christmas canon. When Christmas comes around, there's a certain list of movies that you watch, (laughs) right? White Christmas, Elf, Christmas Vacation, Rudolph, whatever it is for your family, you've got movies you watch, music you listen to when you're decorating the tree, Maybe there's a meal you make every Christmas morning. When you get married, you get to go through the fun process of deciding which traditions to keep, which traditions to do away with, which new ones you want to start. My wife's family did me the disservice of, uh, <laughs> of giving her ice cream on her birthday for breakfast every year. And that's not the disservice. The disservice is they didn't tell me that. And so... Our first year of marriage, I made the mistake of breaking tradition. I didn't get her ice cream, and not only that, 
I offered, would, I, at the time I thought this was a great idea, um, offered to take her out to lunch at Subway instead. So <laughs> she was let down. So I broke tradition. But it's not just families that have it. Churches have tradition too. Our church has traditions, certain ways that we do things. And the thing is, some traditions are significant. They have meaning. They're important. And they're there for a reason. And some we just do because that's just how we've always done it. Well, there's two traditions that the Christian church, not just ours, but Christians throughout time and across denominational lines, not just Baptists, not just uh, Lutherans, just everybody, has done is communion or the Lord's Supper and baptism. And those are not traditions that we just do because that's how we've always done it. Those are there for a reason. They're significant. Those traditions shape us as a people. They give us a corporate identity. It means uh, it helps us know this is what it means to be part of this family, to be part of this faith. But like any tradition, I mean, we do the same old thing. You do it with any sort of regularity, and it just kind of becomes kind of standard procedure, and you can kind of approach it robotically. It's sort of like putting on pants. You're all wearing pants this morning. Congratulations. But few of us could remember which leg we put on first because you just, you just do it. You've always done it. And if you've hung around church for a while, you've been around the Lord's table. You've taken the bread and the cup, and maybe you have forgotten. Uh, you approach it robotically. If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning. Maybe you've seen us do this, and it hasn't made a lot of sense exactly what it is we're doing. Every once in a while, we need to be reminded of the significance of communion. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. So I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and follow along with me. And so, well, first thing I'll point out is verses 20 and 26 are kind of like clear transition statements in the text. And so it actually breaks it pretty nicely into three sections. Sections I'm going to call preparation, pronouncement, and Passover. So first is preparation, verses 17 through 19. It says it was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the disciples came to Jesus and asked, hey, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now most of us in this room have never celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. Few of us have, but it's not a significant part of who we are as Christians. But any Jew during Jesus' time would know exactly what these guys are talking about. These were a big deal. This was a big holiday. And the reason it was so big is because of what it signified. It was important to them. It was part of their tradition and a huge, a huge part of it. And the reason it was so big is because it symbolized the deliverance of God's people. We don't have time to go into the details, but it's the stories found all the way back in the book of Exodus when God's people were slaves and God miraculously brought them out from slavery. And the, the crushing blow, so to speak, that made that happen, there were a series of events, but the crushing blow uh, was when God sent uh, what the Bible simply calls the destroyer through the land of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh had clenched his fist so tightly around the Israelites, it was like a death grip, and God was prying his hand open by force. And so God sends this destroyer through the land of Egypt, and any family that hadn't sacrificed a lamb and put the blood over its doorpost, which sounds weird to us, but that's what God had them do, any family that hadn't done that experienced tragedy. The destroyer uh, took their first child. It was super Sad, but any Egyptian or any Israelite who would listen 
was their house was passed over. And so that's where the term Passover comes from. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day memorial feast. It was a week-long celebratory event remembering how God had saved his people out of Egypt because it finally took the death of Pharaoh's son to get them out. It just shows you how hard his heart had become. Now Passover was the central meal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're not actually two separate things. They're kind of part of the same thing. And so as any Jew was doing around that time, the disciples are making preparations just as Jesus tells them to. They go to this house, they find the room, and they get it set up. Now, Matthew just kind of skips forward several hours. In verse 20, it says, just when evening came. So they're making preparations probably in the afternoon and just skip forward maybe five, six hours. And it doesn't say when during the meal he makes this pronouncement. It just says, as they were eating, he makes this pronouncement, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Almost certainly it wasn't right away. You know, they didn't just pray and thank God for the food and he says, hey, to kick this off, um, one of you is gonna stab me in the back. Uh, No, it, it was probably that they were sitting, they were eating together, they were enjoying fellowship. It was pretty normal for people at the time to read the story of the Exodus, to remember and rehearse how God had saved them, and so that's likely what they had been doing. This was generally a pretty joyful gathering, and not like, you know, Chuck E. Cheese, balloons and songs and clowns kind of amusing and joyful, if you even call that (laughs) joyful. Um, it, It had a somber tone, but not... Not a sad tone, if that makes sense. Now, I want you to try to put yourself in the room for a moment. If closing your eyes helps you, you can do that, but you don't have to. Just imagine it's dark outside. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's, you know, uh, early spring. Candles and oil lamps around the house, and there's this earthy smell of clay and dirt. That's what the house is made out of. It smells maybe kind of like camping to us. You're sitting with your closest friends, people that you've lived with for the last three years and you've enjoyed life with and it has been just a good meal together. You're celebrating one of the central feasts of your people and you're just having a good night. Good friends, good food, good conversation and it's just you're content. And then there's a lull in the conversation. It kind of gets quiet for a moment. And Jesus looks around, makes eye contact with every one of his disciples, including you. And he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And it takes you a second to really absorb what he just said. Because you are completely unaware that Judas, who you consider to be a friend and a trustworthy guy, that he, you're unaware that he has already accepted the money. He has already made his deal with the Pharisees to hand Jesus over. And the joy and warmth of that room has been filled with a chill of sadness and shock. Now, surprisingly, the disciples don't start pointing fingers at each other, which is interesting because earlier they had been arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. See, unlike you and me, they didn't know that it was Judas. I don't know if you've seen, I think it's Da Vinci who painted that, that famous scene of the Last Supper and Judas has got this like menacing look on his face and he's, I mean, he just looks guilty. <laughs> That's not how it was. These guys were totally shocked. They were blown away. 
John's gospel says that they simply just stared at one another at a loss to know who it was. No idea. So just think for a moment of how well Judas had acted, how smooth he'd been. For years, he had convinced 11 guys that he was just like them without raising a single suspicion. And then he's going to kill Jesus. He's crafty. He's smart. He's got a smooth tongue. He doesn't look greasy and evil. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, there's a guy named Wormtongue who just looks bad. You don't even have to know. You just, you just see him and you're like, you're evil, dude. Okay? That's not Judas. A lot of times, evil does not look evil until you see it in the rearview mirror. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? That's uh, one of the sayings of ours. Now, it's not the main point of the sermon, but a good question for all of us to ask ourselves is, what evil am I overlooking right now? What evil do I not, what thing do I not see as evil today, but in days, months, or years, when we look back on it, will obviously be seen as evil? No, instead of accusing Judas or anyone else, actually, the disciples act with kind of a surprising humility. They, they say, it's not me, is it? They're expecting Jesus to say no, and they say, surely not I, Rabbi. I mean, they're expecting, no, it's not me. And they're expecting Jesus to go, of course not you, Bartholomew. No, Peter, you wouldn't do that. But he doesn't really reassure them. All he does is he says the same thing in different words. It's one who's dipped his hand into the bread bowl with me. Now, back in those days, everyone grabbed from the same bowl. He's not an identifying thing here. It's just a way of saying, one of you who's pretending to be my friend is the one to do it. Yeah, so he reiterates that, but then he makes two statements that are important for us to follow. First, he says that the Son of Man, and he's referring to himself, will go just as it is written about him. This will happen. Jesus is going to die, and he is fully aware of it. He knows what's going to happen. This is a statement of fact. This is more sure than when you watch the news and the weatherman says, hey, it's, it's probably going to rain today or it will rain today. This is a confident prediction of the future. There is no world where Jesus is not betrayed. It will happen. It has been foretold and even foreordained. It must happen. And that's exactly what he says actually earlier in Matthew. Ten chapters earlier in Matthew 16, he says the Son of Man must suffer and die. Not just that he will. It's a necessity. It has to happen. It will happen. Nothing's going to change. But then he makes an interesting statement following that. But woe to the one who betrays him. It will be better for the betrayer if he had never been born. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Job in the Bible, but Job was a guy who lost everything. He lost his children, he lost his wealth, his business, his servants, his wife turned on him, his friends accused him, he, was un, he, he got sick. In fact, the Bible says he was scraping his skin with pottery to try to alleviate some of the pain. And in the midst of his agony, there's a moment where Job looks back on the day that he was born and he pronounces a curse on it and he says, that day be damned. It would have been better for my mom to have a stillborn or to miscarry than for me to be alive in the midst of this. It is deep. 
sadness for Job. And Jesus uses similar language to describe the fate of the betrayer. Judas stands in a unique category of judgment. He committed the premeditated, thoughtful, cold, and calculated betrayal of the only truly innocent person to ever walk the face of this earth. He was even worse than the Pharisees and Pilate who didn't pretend to follow him before killing him. They just straight up told him, we don't believe you. Do you remember when Jesus prays for the Roman guards? He says, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. Not the case with Judas. He had sat under Jesus' teachings. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the claims of Christ. Judas had more evidence than anybody or most people in human history to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. If he didn't know that he was betraying the Son of God, it's because he didn't want to know. Not because he couldn't. So, Jesus pronounces woe on Judas. He looks straight into the eyes of God himself and he stabs him in the back like a coward. Now, in spite of the fact Think about these two statements. In spite of the fact that it's God's sovereign plan, it's going to happen, it will happen, that this betrayal has been planned even millennia beforehand, it doesn't remove responsibility from Judas. There's not some unseen spiritual gun being held to Judas's head forcing him to act. He is acting completely of his own accord. He knows what he's doing and he's acting not against his will but with it. God's sovereignty is not God's coercion here. You want to know how I know? There was still time for Judas to change course. He, he had made the deal with the Pharisees at this point, but he, but he could have turned. Almost every commentator I read sees this statement as dark and sad as it is of what Jesus is doing. It can seem kind of even mean. Most commentators believe that this is actually a call to repentance. He is showing Judas the end of the road that he's on. And he's telling him, get off that road, Judas. Turn. Your fate is a horrible fate. You don't have to go there. Judas could have turned. At that moment, Judas could have said, it's me. He could have got on his knees and said, Jesus, I am sorry. I shouldn't have done it. I loved money more than you. I didn't believe you. I have lied to you. I've lied to all of you here. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus would have, just as he does with Peter later on, who also betrays him, denies him in front of everybody, but Jesus restores Peter, forgives him. But that's not what Judas does. Judas keeps up the act. He continues to pretend and he continues to lie. Look at the next line. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, rabbi. He pretends to act shocked and sad, just like the other disciples, phrasing his question in almost exactly the same words. In fact, his question is exactly the same except for one word. Did you notice? They say, surely not I, Lord. And he says, surely not I, Rabbi. Judas is the only person in the Gospel of Matthew to call Jesus Rabbi. Did you know that? Normally it's a title of honor, but I think maybe what Judas is doing here is trying to convince himself and others that he's betraying nothing more than a man. Now Jesus' response is kind of enigmatic. If you have an NIV, which was what I have and what Greg was reading, it just says, yes, it's as you say. 
they're trying to clear up some ambiguity, uh, but I think the writer wants us to have the ambiguity. So if you have a more little translation, it, it will say, you yourself have said it. In modern English, we might just say, those are your words. That doesn't answer the question, Jesus, okay? It's just kind of, there's a tension there. Now, if we understand Jesus' previous thing to be a call to repentance, I think it's supposed to have the force of saying, I don't know, Judas, is it? Kind of putting the ball in his court. But Matthew doesn't resolve the tension. He just moves on. In verse 26, while they were eating, he just kind of skips forward. It, it was probably several minutes, maybe half an hour later. I don't know when, but it's, he's shifting scenes now. And he moves forward. And so you've got the Passover meal, which is bringing the Exodus story. It should be bringing the Exodus story to your mind. And you've got the betrayal and the death of Jesus being talked about so far. Now what Jesus does in this third section is he combines those two things using the Passover imagery, using the elements of that meal to give meaning to his death, to tell his disciples what it means that he's going to die. The first thing he does is he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. Now there's several images, or several layers to that imagery. Uh, First off, there's a quote all the way back in Deuteronomy that calls it the bread of affliction. And so every Passover meal that the disciples had been to in their lives every year, uh, when someone had taken the bread, the tradition was to say this is the bread of affliction. It was supposed to symbolize the suffering of their ancestors and how God had brought them out. And Jesus, he doesn't say this is the bread of affliction. He says, this is my body. And so now when you and I, when his followers eat the bread, they're not remembering the suffering. We aren't remembering the suffering of our ancestors. We're remembering the suffering of our Savior. This is my body. And he's telling you that my body is what's going to suffer. But there's more. See, earlier in Matthew, you might remember the story of Jesus being led into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil to make stones turn into what? Bread, right? Now, Jesus' response here is super interesting. He says, uh, when he's talking to the devil, he doesn't turn the stones into bread. He quotes Deuteronomy, and he says, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. So just think about that statement and how it connects to communion for a moment. First off, man does not live on bread alone. There is a certain kind of life that you and I were created for, and physical food won't get us there. Physical food falls short. If you are a health nut and you have a great diet, which nowadays probably doesn't even include bread, (laughs) no matter how healthy you eat, you'll die. You will die. That food doesn't bring the full kind of life that you were created for. There is another kind of sustenance for that. And Jesus says that it's every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we know from other places in scripture and what Jesus says about himself that he is that word. He is the word of God. And so it's not bread, but Jesus that really gives us the life that we're created for. And that's why he says in John that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full abundant life. And so what's interesting here is when he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. 
So do you get it? He, he's, it's sort of like a play on words almost. We don't live on bread, but bread. We live by faith in Jesus. And so when we take the bread, we're not just remembering his suffering, we're expressing faith in that suffering. It's not a magic bread that does something for us. He's already cleared that up. We don't live on bread alone. It's not the physical element. It is the person of Christ. It is the faith that we have in Christ. And so when we take that bread, it's an expression of our trusting the suffering of his body to give us life. His death is our life. His suffering is our sustenance. When he dies, we live. And so he gives his body as our bread, the true bread that we need. But then he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood, which is given for you. Now he calls it the blood of the covenant. Now, there's a super exciting rabbit trail here that we just don't have time for. Uh, but if you want to know, ask me after the service. I'd be glad to talk about it. Uh, but he's probably quoting a spot back in Exodus where he's, um, Moses is confirming uh, the, what's called the Old Covenant. And Moses, after about four or five chapters of teaching on what a covenant, which is basically a promise, God promising, I'll be their God, you'll be my people. After four or five chapters of teaching what that's going to look like, he sacrifices an animal. And it sounds weird to us, but that's how they would seal a covenant back in the day. You know, how just how you and I will sign a legal document with a notary, and now it's effective. It can hold up in court. A covenant was sealed with blood. Which sounds weird to us, but that's, that's the way they did things. And so Moses sprinkles the blood on the people and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. It's now effective. There's not many other places in the Bible where that phrase shows up. And Jesus is saying here that my blood, represented by the wine, is bringing a new kind of covenant. What the Bible calls the new covenant. There's a passage back in Jeremiah. It's probably the most descriptive passage on the new covenant, at least in the Old Testament. It should be up on the screen as well. And let me just read it to you. And so the reason we need to see this is we need to see when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, this is the covenant he's talking about. The time is coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So it's not like the covenant back in Exodus. Why? Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. They broke it. They messed it up. We need something else. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Three points on this passage really quick that we need to know about the new covenant. First off, this covenant is internal, not external. He says, I will write my law on their hearts. This is in contrast to it being written on stone tablets. You've all seen like pictures of Moses carrying these like big burly rocks that have the 10 commandments. In contrast to that, which is good, uh, even better is his law written on our hearts. There's an internal component. That's why we drink 
the blood. There's some, Im- or we don't drink actual blood, obviously. We drink uh, the wine or the juice. There's a uh, imagery there. The second thing is it makes it clear that each person can personally know God. Each person can personally know God. So it says, no longer will man teach his neighbor or man his brother, saying, no, Yahweh, because they'll all know me. When Jesus came, he gave unprecedented access for people to come to God's presence. And if you've been around church a long time, this is probably one of those things that you've heard before. And just like traditions, if we hear the same old thing and it becomes the same old thing, we can start taking something that's actually really important for granted. You, you personally can know God. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And that's something that's given to you in the new covenant. And the only way you're gonna get that is through the death and resurrection of Christ. The third thing about this covenant I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. We are forgiven. A new covenant means a new reputation with God. The shame that we have brought on ourselves by our sin or the shame that has been put upon us by others sinning against us. The guilt, all of that is wiped away. This new covenant makes us pure. There's some really interesting imagery in Isaiah where it says that his blood will wash us white Blood stains, blood stains clothing. Do you see what they're doing? They're using this complete contrasting imagery to jog your brain to get you to think, how in the world would blood make a person white? How how in the world would that happen? It's all pointing forward to this sacrifice and Jesus hands them the wine and he says, that's my blood that's doing this. My blood is the one that's gonna forgive the sins. And that's exactly the point he makes back in Matthew, right? He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus is all about. Even at the very beginning of Matthew, it says, Matthew 121, uh, his parents are commanded, call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's why his name is, that's even why he's named Jesus, is it's pointing to his forgiveness of our sins, his saving us from our sins. Now finally, Jesus says, I tell you I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, Jesus knows his death is coming. He's not surprised by it. He knows what's ahead of him and he's basically telling them, this is the last Passover meal I'm gonna have with you guys this side of eternity. There is another day coming when we'll be reunited and we will eat it in my Father's kingdom. Jesus sees a future day coming when he will be back with his disciples. And so it's interesting about communion. When we come to the table, we look back on how God has saved us in Christ. But in a small way, we're actually also looking forward there's, a, there's actually a prophetic element to taking this that we're saying we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes because when he comes, we're not gonna need to proclaim it anymore. We're not gonna need to take this little thing pretending, not pretending, anticipating what's going to come because what will come will be here. You will eat and drink with the disciples at the same table as Christ himself and the food and the company at that meal will be better than the food and company you've ever had at any meal in your life. 
There's a future day coming. And that, I, I've mentioned this before, but that is an indispensable hope for us as believers. We've got to look forward to that day. As a small plug, um, Easter, I mean, that's, that's what Scott's gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about our future, the new heavens, the new earth, the new life. And I think he's got a series even following that. We're gonna look at that more in depth. So, Let's tie all of this together. What Jesus does here is he takes the bread and the wine and he reinterprets these Passover elements not to refer to the event of the Exodus, but to the event of his own death. And just as Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus is saying, I'm the better Moses who brings my people out of slavery to sin and death. This is attaching to a much larger theme in Matthew of showing Jesus as the greater Moses. But Jesus doesn't just lead us out of slavery. He's, not, he's a little bit different than Moses because Jesus is the Passover lamb that was killed so that the, the destroyer would pass over the house. He's not just Moses who brings them out. He's actually also the sacrifice that protects the people from the judgment of God. You see, it took, back in Exodus, the death of Pharaoh's sons for the people to finally be released. But now it's not Pharaoh's son who dies, is it? It's God's son who dies and the people are released. It's not the tragedy and the death of the villain that brings deliverance. It's the tragedy and death of God himself that brings deliverance. It's his own self-sacrifice. And since this night, Christians throughout all generations have gathered every week, some churches every month, every quarter, every year, we have gathered to remember what God has done for us in Christ. It is a constant reminder for us of our dependence on the grace and mercy of God found in Jesus. It is a way for us to rehearse the gospel to ourselves. Scott mentioned this, the when we gather together, we gather because the Father has brought us and the reason, the reason we're even able to gather is because of the body and blood of Christ. More significant than our ethnicity, our common sports teams, our common hobbies, the thing that you and I have in common when we come together as believers is the body and blood of Christ and that is core to who we are as believers. So here's what I'm hoping will happen today. We're gonna be doing communion together and I'm hoping that you would be reminded and be refreshed by the greatness of Christ's sacrifice for you. That maybe it has become something that's kind of robotic. Hopefully today you've been refreshed by God's love for you, by the story of how Jesus has saved you. That when we take his, the, the uh, bread, we would remember his suffering. We would be expressing our faith in that suffering. That when we take the cup, we would be thanking God for all the blessings of that new covenant. And I only mentioned three. There's way more. As a community of believers, we gather to remember what Christ has done and to anticipate what is still to happen. If you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if when you take the bread, if you can't say, I have faith that his death is what brings me life and only that, is what brings me life, then I would just ask you to observe. Just ask you to just kind of watch and consider. But I do want to invite you to that faith, to faith in Christ, 
If, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're at a spot where you're feeling like, I'm not experiencing that abundant life that he offered, that I need that kind of life, you're not gonna get it with physical food and you're not gonna get it with anything else that this world has to offer. The only way you're gonna get it is through Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that it was his body and blood and not ours. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the gift of communion. Now, Lord, we praise you for all that you've done. And as we come to your table this morning, Lord, it may be familiar to a lot of us. Would you please refresh our hearts? Would you remind us of how significant these things are as we come back to this tradition I pray that it would not be same old, same old, that it would not be robotic, God, but there would be a genuine and true expression of our faith in Christ. And I pray that in his name, amen.